With the planned launch of its new heavy rocket and a payload headed to orbit the moon, it's a red-letter day for NASA. Lots of contractors have been working on and behind the scenes and will be there for the duration of the mission. On Friday, I caught up with one of them. Lidos has several information technology support contracts to help NASA keep the lunar enterprise going. Before he departed for Florida, I spoke with the vice president and division manager at Lidos, Nate Apodaca. Before you head down there, let's get maybe a sense of the scope of the IT. I mean, this is probably as much an information technology venture, this launch back to the moon, as it is rocketry and telemetry and and, uh, orbital science. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, with us monitoring the network and then making sure all of the network connections are operating, the backbone is operating, that people are able to communicate and collaborate across all of the different NASA centers, as well as providing, monitoring, maintain all the endpoint systems. Um, We're going to be monitoring and taking care of the video systems that are going to track the launch as it takes off. We're going to have boots on the ground there to respond to just a myriad of issues. NASA TV is also supported by Lidos. Um, So a lot of integration points across the gamut, across the enterprise. And it's always very interesting, Tom, because for us, a successful launch is nothing happens. Right. So, I mean, it's, you know, very interesting as long as the rocket takes off and gets to where it's going and nobody calls me or my team. We did a great job. Right. Nothing happens except the launch itself. Exactly. Exactly. And how far back does planning actually begin for the moment of the liftoff? Oh, I mean, this thing's been going on. I know for us, as long as we've been engaged with NASA, which is over three years, but I mean, NASA's been working it, you know, five to seven years, you know, preparing for this launch. And what kind of exercises, what kind of scenarios, I imagine there must be the running of what-if scenarios and non-live fires, if you will, of the launch and so on. Tell us more about that process. They run the gamut of uh, what they call dry dresses and wet dresses. So dry dresses would be, you know, getting the rocket prepared with no propellant, no fuel, nothing really activated, but just can we go through the physical motions of getting the rocket ready to launch? And are there any issues there? Then we mature into what is called wet dress, which it's basically fired up, primed and ready to go like we were actually going to launch. And there's multiple iterations of that. And then invariably, that you know, we flush through issues and, and, and resolve them, um, all focusing on the 29th now. Now, there are lots of computers aboard the rocket that control the engines, that monitor what's going on, that the sequence and all of this. I mean, I only know what I see on TV when it comes to rocketry. <laughs> right, right. Those, I imagine, are not LIDOS, but they interface with the systems that you're using elsewhere? Absolutely. Yeah, well said. That's exactly right. So most of those mission systems are insular and, and, and managed by their own independent mission staffs and mission folks. But but we definitely have to interface there. Um, sometimes there's some monitoring or at least they want to connect to the NASA administrative network to be able to do some data transport or some storage. And we facilitate that. What about the capture of data and then for later analysis? Because data amounts, I'm imagining, again, are very large and begin the minute someone says liftoff till the rocket returns. Right. No, it's exactly right. So I think, you know, it's, 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 it's very important that we, you know, maximize the infrastructure to the greatest degree that we're able. And that's a lot of times where we can lend a helping hand to the mission systems. Sometimes, depending on the mission or the mission operator, they're not necessarily scaled for the amount of data 
that they get access to a lot of times because we don't know, right? We're doing science and part of science is investigating the unknown. So as they start unraveling these and, 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 and digesting them, this telemetry data or scientific data that's coming across, you know, we are able to sort of serve as a backup for them if, if they need, you know, places to store things or, or an alternative path to get somewhere. We're speaking with Nathan Apodaca. He's a vice president and division manager at Lidos. How many people do you have on this particular job, this launch? This uh, this is what you would call an all hands event for us. Um, so everybody's engaged. My division's uh, right around a thousand people all over the country, uh, including some folks in Russia. And so, yeah, this is all hands on deck. Everybody will be engaged. Everyone will be monitoring and making sure that they are able to be as responsive as possible to make sure this thing goes off without a hitch. And I'm old enough to remember the Mercury era launches on television. And what you saw in NASA were these big, hardwired steel consoles. Today, it's all, I guess, PCs, basically, that are the interface. What are the NASA flight managers, the flight operators, the flight director staff sitting in rows there looking up at stuff. What's their support infrastructure? So, um, you know, they're operating off laptops, as you said, and 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 we've got um, boots on the ground, people to respond to all of those centers. And, and you know, it would as you would imagine, there's a ton of redundancy, right? So you have the launch facilities there at Kennedy. You've got launch support facilities at Johnson, tertiary launch facilities at Marshall, all of those folks. We're supporting all of those locations in case of failover or backup or, or, or something were to happen. Um, we've got a lot of boots on the ground at a lot of different locations just to make sure that um, everything ticks and ties and it is flowing nicely. And in contracting with NASA, what was the route to it? Was it a full and open for this particular IT support contract? Did they use a GWAC that you have a position on, or how did that happen? No, no, these were full and open competitions. Um, and so we were the prime winner on two of them. One is uh, the Nest contract, which is end user focus. The other one is the Aegis contract, which is a lot of the infrastructure, cloud and data center support. And then we were a sub to Booz Allen on the recently awarded Cypress contract, which is all the cybersecurity support. And did you have to bring in a equipment and wiring and network component piece to all of this? Or was the NASA network and all the machinery already in place and you're managing it? Yeah, this was sort of a pick up the football while they're on the on the run and, 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 and just keep the momentum and making sure we get the ball across the goal line. And what are some of the telecommunications requirements for this whole project? You've got ground networks. You've got to communicate with the rocket itself, which at the same time is sending down information. Yeah, you've got everything from, you know, AM, FM to microwave. Um, large-scale WAN technology, um, you know, it's quite a, I use the term mesh lightly because it's not a formal mesh network, but if you were to look at it of all of the different interconnections and, and different types of network types for things like audio, radio, video, data transport, it spans the gamut. And Lidos, of course, has a pretty big footprint across the federal government. I just came through a TSA screening center or two recently, and there you were, <laughs> you know, named up there on the banner. But Yeah. Is there the sense among your people that this is a little bit above because of the historic nature of what's supposed to happen, namely getting back to the moon? Yeah, I think, you know, Lightus as a whole, we're very mission operations driven and we like to know that we're contributing, you know, to something 
greater than ourselves, you know, outside of our, our kind of corporate strategy. And right now, this is, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find something bigger, right? I mean, other than the very first space shuttle launch, like in recent history, you know, this is the biggest thing that NASA's done. And so, um, you know, it, it's it's a really cool feeling for us to be on the forefront of that and able to support them. And will you have your own two eyeballs on it? That is the blast off. I will. I will probably not be sleeping. We have to be on site at, I think, 1.30 or 2 a.m. for a what is scheduled to be an 8.20-ish launch window. So, um, you know, I think the great thing about that was as we were notified, you know, which time we need to leave and how we need to arrive on site and all of the intricacies of getting onto uh, Kennedy or near Cocoa Beach to see the launch. It just shows the depth and breadth and, and what they're expecting, the amount of people that are just going to come, just just lay people, not even NASA related or mission related, just people that want to go and get excited about science and about what NASA is doing. They just want to be there on site. And so they're expecting a lot of people there. Nate Apodaca is a vice president and division manager at Lighthouse. I spoke with him Friday before he departed for the Kennedy Space Flight Center in Florida. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when 
I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
And you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.